Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What next? Well, today we're actually talking about what was and what might have been 1917 to 2017. Nice to have you with us. You have to be a bit more like Alex Jones,
Hello listeners, today we're talking about the centenary of the Russian Revolution, but before we do that, imagine this. Imagine we were enjoying even more unseasonably warm weather this November, which was the result of having enjoyed significantly greater economic growth over the preceding century. Imagine that in response to this enhanced global warming, we already had a planetary climate control system in place, and we're now discussing how to modulate our global geoengineering strategies with cloud mirrors, and also whether to implement terraforming strategies with orbiting space mirrors to ensure longer-term climate control. Imagine all this is taking place in a context in which there are no real countries to speak of and no endless tedious debates about how to respond to climate change taking place in remote international bureaucracies. Instead, there's a spontaneously operating global system of climate planning and control. This is one of the opening scenes from the book that we're discussing today for the centenary, Lenin Lives, Reimagining the Russian Revolution 1917-2017 to on Zero Books by Philip Cunliffe. We're delighted by the opportunity of having actually managed to secure an interview with the author who very rarely appears on podcasts. Philip's book portrays a world in which fascism never happens, so Israel is never established and the Middle East never becomes a cockpit of sectarian rivalry and religious conflict. It's a world in which Churchill flees a revolutionary Britain to a reactionary royalist Canada, and it's also a world in which Hitler ends up an anonymous, obscure artist shooting up speed and literally eating shit, while Eleanor Roosevelt is free to live as an out-and-proud lesbian, while Mars is colonised by the 1970s. All of this flows from the opening premise of the book. The book asks that question that has occurred to anyone who's devoted time thinking to the Russian Revolution, namely, what if communism had worked? What if communism had really succeeded? That is to say, not what if the Russians had won the Cold War by making more tanks and making more missiles than the Americans, but what if the early victory and spread of the Russian Revolution had changed the context of world politics, allowing for building a much better world? A world in which communism supplants capitalism in the core of the global economy, going out of it and beyond it rather than offering an alternative to it. And in so doing, it brings not only superior economic growth and technological advances, but also greater democracy, prosperity and freedom the world over. We're used to endless dark fantasies of what if the Nazis had won the Second World War and succeeded in invading the UK and the US, but rarely if ever do we indulge the notion that things could have turned out much, much better. Maybe we're afraid of imagining the best possible world. As argued by the philosopher Slavoj Žižek, everyone knows that there was no version of fascism that was supposed to be better. It offered, promised and delivered totalitarian politics. Communism, on the other hand, was supposed to be much, much better and promised much, much more. This week, we'll be talking about, if not the best possible world, then what the revolution entailed and what it might mean for us today. So, with us on today's Alpha Bunga Bunga, we have Phil and Alex, and me, I'm George. So, right off the bat, Phil, what were you trying to do with this book? I was trying to bring the Russian Revolution to to make it speak to um, the contemporary era. And I thought the best way to do that, perhaps, or an original way to do that, and I think the best way to do that, was rather than um, talking about its historic legacy over the last 100 years, how it impacted world politics, was to ask what if. Was to ask what if it succeeded in spreading from Russia to uh, the core of the global economy, the core of the global political system at the time, which is to say Western Europe and the US. And I think that was a much more, it was a way to get around um, our expectations. It was a way to avoid rehearsing 
the common stock understandings and responses both on the left and the right of the Russian Revolution, but it was also to treat it more seriously, I think, than any other commentator has treated it. And one and to offer a perspective that I think is absolutely integral to understanding the event as a whole. And without which it doesn't make any sense. Because what if was built into the calculations that the Bolsheviks made in determining whether or not they would seek to seize power. Uh, calculations about whether or not the time was right, calculations about the ability of Russian society to bear um, the dictatorship of the proletariat, to bear the transfer of power from the, so from the liberal provisional government to the Soviets. So what if was integral? A way to kind of revitalize it for the current day, but also integral to understanding events as they unfolded 100 years ago. So this this what if that's I think as you rightly say core to political strategy. What what is the what is the specific what if that you explore in this book? So the what if is if inspired by the success of the October Revolution, the revolution succeeds in spreading to Germany um, over 1918 to 1919 when you had the German Revolution, but that resulted in the left, in reality, in the left of the German working class leadership was liquidated by the right wing of the Social Democratic Party. So instead of that, the left succeeds in consolidating a revolutionary government in Germany, in northern Italy. It spreads in the, in the early to mid-1920s to France and Britain, at the same time as inspired by events as what's happening in Europe, the industrial unrest, the post-war industrial unrest in the US escalates and escalates rather than being crushed by Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare and his um, suppression of industrial militancy and unionism of the period. And all of that collectively over the course of the 1920s leads to the establishment of socialist governments in the West, in Western Europe and in the US. So this this is what you narrate in in large part throughout the book. How would you respond to somebody who says this is, you know, this sort of counterfactual history isn't is just a bit of like a bit just a bit of dreaming and and wish fulfillment on on your part? I suppose I'd say something that we opened with, which is to say that the um, given the proclivity to imagine worst case scenarios and these strange masochistic images of um, in which um, we're constantly reimagining ourselves prostrate before the Nazi jackboot. I mean, you think of SSGB or the man in the high castle, the Amazon TV series. It seems to me that um, almost, you know, it's almost uh, sickness, almost pathological, the degree to which we keep on reimagining doing that. So why not ask a tremendously positive question, an uplifting question, because I think even the most um, dedicated critics and opponents of the Russian Revolution would accept at least that the intention was much more humane and fulsome and um, greater in scope and vision than anything that fascism offers, and fascism can't in any meaningful way be called utopian. So to that degree, I think it's, you know, it's not a... If everyone else, um, you know, if this cultural production of uh, Nazi conquest is constantly redone, it seems to me it's at least valid to ask once a more positive what if. But also, secondly, I think the utopianism, the point about utopianism is that 
I think perhaps in the current political impasse, in the current social context in which we're thinking and writing and talking, I think utopianism perhaps is merited as a way of um, perhaps re-energizing our sense of possibility, uh, widening our sense of political horizons. And an important part of that is not only thinking about how the future could be better, but also thinking about how the past might have been better. And I think that feeds in an important way into thinking about future possibilities as well. Mm. So, I mean, is there an extent to which then you're also looking at counterfactual history and saying there's there's something to this methodology which is not exhausted by just endless what if the Nazis had won? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if um, if anything, I think perhaps you could even make the case that it is precisely these kinds of revolutionary counterfactuals that are the most significant arena for deploying counterfactual analysis, for deploying the analysis of what if. Precisely if you treat revolutions as um, you know, historically rare but tremendously important singular episodes where uh, hinge points of history, where tremendous, you know, the stakes are incredibly high depending on how they swing, then it seems to me what if is... Um, is vital to ask of those of those moments precisely because it's not the normal course of events that is um you know kind of routine mundane ordinary expected predictable uh structured or pre-given that's the by definition that's what a revolution involves so what if i think is always um perhaps what if is most appropriately asked of revolutionary episodes and periods so you, you've hinted at something which is um kind of masochistic in the usual counterfactuals of uh, usual counterfactual histories in which the Nazis win the Second World War, like this kind of secret longing for <laughs> for being dominated, or not so um, secret, <laughs> or not so secret. Um, but I mean, I guess the the argument to put to you, um, slightly playing devil's advocate with regard to your more utopian counter, well, your definitely utopian counterfactual history, is that does it not avoid politics? I mean, does it not? Um, avoid grappling with the difficulties of the political decisions that needed to have been taken and charting out this um, vision, this alternate timeline where the revolution actually succeeds, in your words, uh, is actually one where it doesn't actually have to cope uh, and deal with the compromises that politics always involves. Like, it's uh, it's a too easy best-case scenario. I mean, how would you respond to that? Um, I guess it's worth thinking a bit about what you mean by utopianism first, but we can get back to that perhaps a little later. Because uh, I guess, I mean, it can be used in many different ways. But I don't think, I mean, I don't I don't think I avoid the um, hard questions. I mean, it's what I offer is by no means exhaustive. Um, but I do think I do my best to capture the main sequence of events, which would involve, um, you know, racial conflict in the U.S., civil war across the major states, um, upheaval and revolution, civil war in particular in Germany and Italy, civil war even in Australia. So I tried to reconstruct how those might play out and the key players and the kinds of decisions that would have um, been important and consequential. But I think the, the, it takes, I mean, it does, you know, altering a few scenarios, imaginatively altering a few key episodes and scenarios and imagining that the mutually reinforcing character of success and victory um, would condition and would condition and re- lead to a overwhelming, um, you know, overwhelming strength of uh, revolutionary upheaval in these core states. 
So I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it avoids the hard questions of politics. If the aim, of course, I mean, the aim of uh, communist revolution, famously, notoriously, was eventually to dissolve the state, which is to say, to dissolve politics, um, yeah. dissolve politics away. And so, I mean, to that degree, you know, it's not something that I think should be shied away from. And I also try to draw that out. The positive, of course, is if you had revolution in the core and in the first part of the 20th century, then so many um, so many negative consequences um, of the failure of revolution would never have materialised. Yeah, I mean, so it reminds me a little bit of the, well, to a lot of the endlessly repurposed uh, Jameson quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And that also kind of conditions our historical imagination as well. So I think... That was one of the bits that I most enjoyed reading was, you know, all these things, these slight things that could have been different, then set off, set off a chain. And then you come to a very different um, looking 2017. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about this different looking 2017, because I think um, one of the one of the bits that I enjoyed about the book was kind of you take the reader a little bit through the, the Marxist understanding that communism succeeds capitalism. Talk us through that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, so um, the I think uh, you know it's a kind of hangover artifact of the Cold War that we think of communism as a alternative social system to capitalism, as if you know you've got kind of a choice for breakfast. One is there, you got your communist puffs over here and your capitalist (laughs) cereal over here, you know, and kind of then some of you know, and each has kind of mutual advantages. Something some things are worse over here and some things are better over there. Um, And I think that's, like I say, that's a hangover of the geopolitical contest of the Cold War, and we know how it ended. And it's a mistake to think of communism as an alternative to capitalism, which is, you know, more slightly more egalitarian, perhaps better healthcare, better education, whatever. Rather, in the classical tradition, at least um, in the classical Marxist tradition, and um, before the Soviet Union solidified into a, you know, geopolitical state competitor with the US. The idea of communism was something that would grow out of the out of industrial capitalism. So it would be built on the achievements of economic capital, well, the economic achievements of capitalism, and the political achievements of liberalism. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I put that quite as clearly in the question as I wanted to, but I think that's been completely lost, hasn't it? Just in the now we see, um, we don't really see defences or understandings of communism as something which is technologically gathering together everything that capitalism has and and transcending it. Rather, it's a, a kind of <clears throat> a, a stationary alternative in, in time. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, and I'd say, you know, even with, um, even with some contemporary kind of evocations of communism, there is, there is this lack of understanding of it's seen as um, it's seen as something which is a choice, I suppose, or something perhaps that can be introduced by government policy, rather than as the evolution and development of our current society into something better. I think it seems that 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 kind of developmentalist point, in the sense of having a long historical trajectory towards kind of a higher stage of history. Um, has been lost, of course, on, on both sides, because it doesn't seem that capitalism promises this either. Um, and then you get the scenario where today you even get some kind of um, kind of latter-day Stalinists who try to argue that, for example, Stalin did nothing wrong in a really affirmative sense, um, because it's a way of sort of trying to recapture an alternative. 
but accepting with it all the compromises that the Soviet Union would have involved. I mean, and compromises is to put it lightly. I mean, the, the actual human oppression that that system involved, um, but kind of adopting that as a, as a way of saying, well, you know what, actually, this is the better alternative and we prefer that. Yeah, Tanki. So I was thinking a bit about this. Um, Tanki Twitter, I think, you know, there's a there is a book just as Angela Nagel's book on the alt-right. You know, there's a book to, waiting to be written about Tanki Twitter um, because it. Do, do you want, maybe you need to elaborate what Tanki Twitter yeah, actually well, is. Yeah, who, so, who would who would write that book? That would definitely drive you insane. I, <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you want to do that, go for it. But don't well, think it would drive you insane. Sanity. But, you know, so Angela Nagel's book on the old right is all about the um, the Internet Tumblr um, subcultures, which gave rise to the ferociously um, PC baiting anti PC uh, various, you know, kind of far right, radical right new ideas um, striking, you know, so sharing in common kind of misogyny and um, trying to rehabilitate yeah. racial thinking and so on. Anyway, so. The, but it seems to me, like you say, there is kind of an equivalent on the left, which is um, the rehabilitation of this weird kind of fetishization of... Um, so there's a hipster kind of communism, you know, the kind of Che Guevara um, turning manga cartoons, making them look kind of Soviet-style, adding red stars and hammers and sickles um, to cartoons. Um, and so tanky, tanky Twitter by reference to Soviet tanks, right? Because that's what all the crazy kind of crazy pro-Soviet Stalinist supporters back in the day wanted. They wanted the tanks to go into Hungary, into Czechoslovakia, and they wanted the tanks to go into Poland and, and East Germany um, at the end of the Cold War. So, and it's weird because I'm sure that these people doing these weird memes, you know, they don't remember any of that. So, they, they, the, I mean, possibly weren't even born yeah, um, at the end of most the Soviet likely, Union. Most likely weren't even born, you know. So how they, you know, it would be, I mean... Like I say, there's a book there to be written. It's less, I mean, obviously less influential than the alt-right, which has achieved prominence with the um, with Richard Spencer and its connection to the Trump administration. But um, alt-left yeah. is one of the, well, I don't want to say alt-left, but the tanky Twitter is a weird, you know, it's a weird subculture and its resilience kind of in the internet blogs is weird. Yeah, there, I mean, there seems to be something cathartic in, in kind of, uh, holding up the hammer and sickle because it means not having to grapple with the usual difficulties in the way that the Soviet Union is normally treated, actually existing socialism and so on. That, yes, there was this, there were certain advances here, but another, you know, there was oppression, there was the gulags, but also people had jobs and health care and, and so on. Um, and it kind of avoids that and kind of goes, no, this is what this is what communism is. And, and maybe that feels like a legitimate uh, option to choose today in but 2017 as opposed to maybe 2007 maybe because there seems to be so little um so little on offer from within capitalist society of, of a positive vision of what the future could be like that whole that looking back to this kind of almost distant past communism is, is something which is uh yeah so kind of a, it's a kind of a more weird, inspiring it's a weird nostalgia for like an, a society where all your problems are are solved because you don't have any yeah. you don't have any control it's so authoritarian i was going to say i think yeah. you're giving it too much credit alex i think it's you know similar to the old right in that there's a baiting element to it so it's it's transgression in terms of transgressing the um the anti-totalitarianism of uh, contemporary liberal politics so it's this um you know it's this kind of postmodern embrace of regimentation and old-fashioned military power in the form of, you know, nukes and tanks and, I don't know, you know, mass gymnastics parades and this kind of 
heavily coordinated society in which everyone's individual ego is aligned and you know behind a great kind of leader or something mm, so i think yeah. it's the it's the appeal of it's the appeal of the totalitarian um image to the decadent postmodern ironic um liberal individual essentially right mm. and no and it, and it and they actually end up being some of the most consistent uh, opposition to the worst most retrograde aspects of liberal postmodern identity politics actually yeah. um which pervades a lot of the left and and is a very kind of vicious and venomous um form of of going about politics um but they're the only ones who really seem to oppose it yeah okay so the 7th of november this was the 100th anniversary of the revolution itself making this this book very very well timed in terms of its release so alex what did the what did the centenary of the revolution look like to you? Well, I mean, I can't speak globally, and I think it was noted that in, in Russia it was quite muted, and and, uh, and there was this odd... Um, that Putin, actually, to, to refer back a little bit to, to the discussion of the USSR's geopolitical role, Putin seemed to be very happy to, um, over the years, kind of co-opt aspects of the Soviet Union um, to his own purposes, but to specifically nationalist purpose, not socialist ones. Um, whereas now, he, I think he completely swerved that. I don't know if Phil had has any comment on that. I mean, only to say that I think it's um, only to say I think that Putin's criticisms of Lenin, you know, which go back, let's remember, to 2014 with the intervention in Ukraine, the Russian intervention in Ukraine, where um, it was Lenin's um, pro. Uh, my, you know, defense of minority nations in the Soviet Union. Um, and I think it's a better homage criticizing Lenin and expelling him from the pantheon of Russian nationalist leaders, I think is better homage to Lenin than any kind of military parade or anything else that Putin might wish to do otherwise. So I think the... Um around the the centenary and we've and we've got a we've got a bit of a, an article to get our, our teeth into a little bit later but alex you had you'd noticed a, a particular strain of of red panic emerging around this the centenary yeah i mean i'm i'm looking at this also slightly from a perspective from where i live which is in sao paulo brazil um and here the centenary was i mean one thing that it's worth noting before any comment on brazil is the degree and latin america more broadly is a degree to which the Cold War never ended in certain ways, at least at a cultural level. Um, the kind of accusations of, of communism and of coups and uh, counter-revolution and so on is still very much alive in a way that uh, in a way that in Western Europe and North America, you know, has completely disappeared from from memory. Um, so, I mean, in Brazil, you had a couple of things where, um, I mean, just to note that you know, the, several of the main papers ran relatively predictable kind of features and op-eds on you know, reminding people that communism is bad um, in probably more hysterical terms than I've just um, portrayed it. Um, I think just a little bit before the centenary, you had a, a notable piece which was widely discussed from, it was an op-ed from the head of a big uh, big high street clothes retailer, um, kind of talking about the danger of communism and that um, various expositions which happened here, art, ex art expositions on issues to do with gender and homosexuality and so on were cultural Marxism and this is how communism wins through the infiltration of the minds of children and all this kind uh. of mad stuff which, uh, which you know, I think in North America you'd associate with, you know, Breitbart and that's and that's being relatively kind to it. Um, and, and here it was kind of published in a mainstream, what actually the largest paper in Brazil. Um, but you also have things like in, in one of the largest un uh, universities in Rio de Janeiro, um, they were teaching a class on the Russian Revolution and uh, protesters 
broke into the classroom demanding military intervention now and shouting anti-communist slogans and things like that, which just seems completely bonkers, but it speaks a little bit to the to the current mood in Brazil. Um, and then you have the Brazilian Communist Party, which has a long history. It was founded back in 1922. Um, it's going to stand a presidential candidate in the 2018 election for the first time in a very long time. Um, but its candidate said the market doesn't have anything to fear from the Brazilian Communist Party. So it kind of gives you a little picture of the, hysteris- the, the hysterical reactions on the right, which are completely disproportionate to any threat, communist or otherwise. Phil, do you want to, do you want to come back on that? I guess it's... You know, there's 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 a question I, I here. Believe, what's... I believe that Alex is giving a a a con- you know it sounds convincing portrayal of Brazil to me. I guess then the question would be whether you've whether you've seen this red panic elsewhere. Whether you, I mean, there's there's a a question here, isn't there, as to whether the the fear of communism is proportionate to its likely realization in the in the near future and we can we're going to move on to talk about this a little bit we have some slightly surprising people calling themselves leninists um probably the most famous one of these being steve steve bannon um who's who said that yeah he who said openly that he was a, a leninist saying lenin wanted to destroy the state um and that's my goal too i want to bring everything cr- uh, crashing down and destroy all of today's establishment so <laughs> So what what do we think is uh, is yeah, Steve Bannon to... the the one for all of all of our Leninist listeners to to get behind, try and get him back back into the center of power in in America? I think Steve Bannon is um, he you know for being a for being a uh, you know radical rightist. So obviously nothing in common with Lenin's politics, but he still understands Lenin better than I think any um, any equivalent figure on the left today. And also he's politically, you know, he's politically actualized a project, you know, so he's will he's been shown himself willing um, to disrupt his own side in order to promote a particular vision. He's shredded, you know, he shredded with helping he helped Bush, um, Trump come to power and in so doing shredded the Bush dynasty, something the Democrats were never able to achieve. And also he's um, been willing to kind of push forward pro-Trump candidates and to destabilize the GOP establishment and, you know, his idea, I mean, not that he's realized it, but his idea to destroy the New Deal administrative state in the US is um, is something which is far more radical than any, you know, any other contemporary political actor, certainly on the left. The left is still entirely bound up with uh, genuflection towards the state and unable to imagine any kind of radical politics beyond the state except NGOs, you know? Is it... So, I mean, Bannon, I think, you know, he has greater political insight with regards to Lenin's politics than any major leftist figure I can think of, apart from maybe Zizek. I think the thing is with uh, Lenin, um, looking at today, is that as politics has become so short-termist and reactive, and not just amongst establishment politics, but even supposedly oppositional movements in the left, um, that the idea of having a sort of long-term plan and program which and a theory about how that works which you then test through practice and then maybe adapt your theory according to how that um as you know according to the results of your practice is something which is um so foreign to politics today across the spectrum high and low that um that i guess holding up bannon as as kind of the only leninist i mean he probably did have a kind of longer term um, you know, kind of theory, and 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 probably the the, the kind of Mont Pelerin society and, and the neoliberals is probably the last example of a successful um, political movement which started off with as a kernel and developed its theory and actually ended up infiltrating 
um, institutions and actually creating a, a movement which transforms society. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's it's so striking that I mean, since the late eighties, nineties onwards, the dominant mode of how you're supposed to do politics, at least in you know Western Europe and, and America, has been don't have a long term strategy. Instead, be, instead be responsive, be reactive to the opinion polls that you put in the field. You know, focus on the marginal voters and, and micro targeting, and in, and you know, actually don't try and necessarily change people's minds, but just find the point at which you can maximize your votes I mean, but i so think there's something on the le- there's something on the left here as well which is that even when there is some attempt to devise a longer term program that it ends up being swallowed up by electoral politics every time they come every time a big election comes around and gets swallowed up by lesser evilism as well so that um however much you might be trying to develop for example an alternative outside the democratic party most of the left rushes back to, to voting in whoever the, the Democratic Party candidate might be, even if it's someone as bad as Hillary Clinton, um, because of short-term needs, which ends up actually retarding the longer-term project or destroying it entirely. But the justification is lesser evilism, right? So, I mean, that's, that's the right. constant yeah. justification on the part of the left um, for the absence of political vision. And obviously, you know, that... And slowly and, slow, and slowly and slowly you start to get greater and greater evil <laughs> yeah. as yeah, you support, absolutely. you know, a worse and worse lesser evil. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's 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 worth saying that the you know just to reflect back on the the place of Lenin in in the book, Phil. You don't you don't suppose that he's still alive in in 2017, and in fact you <laughs> and in fact you say that in 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 the in the alternative history that you paint, he would actually become uh, relatively unimportant. What I mean, what do you what do you mean by that? Because I think that kind of it does it is quite surprising in some ways that we're still talking about lenin as a you know as a as a specific sort of political actor that we want to emulate or we need to reproduce because we've 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 lacked the conditions to go beyond beyond him essentially yeah and i hope another reason to write the book i guess is to go beyond the russian revolution is not to be uh, not for it to be anymore the kind of the uh, haunting as um, as i think it has whether whether um, haunting its enemies or haunting its supporters. So the paradox around which the book is partly built is the idea that had Lenin's politics succeeded, he himself would have been a much more, he would have become a much more marginal figure because the revolutions in the West and the new leaders they would have thrown up um, by virtue of their scale simply would have overwhelmed the significance of the Russian Revolution. And the Russian Revolution would have turned out to be a spark that would light the flame, and obviously the flame would have been much more important. And to that degree, Lenin would have faded into um, lesser significance. So I think very... we can understand this. We can even understand this in our times. I mean, if you think of the only recent revolution, and not a successful one, but the Arab Spring, that started off with a spark in Tunisia, a relatively unimportant um, country in broader Arab politics. But that's that sparked off the revolution in Egypt. And of course, we talk still about what happened in Egypt and then subsequently in Syria, much more than anything we talk about that happened in, in Tunisia. Yeah, I think that's a maybe good, a kind of contemporary example which might um, bring to light what you're talking about. It's a good one, I guess. I mean, you know, with the caveat, obviously, that there was no um, organized, there was no organized uh, political force in Tunisia that brought down the regime on comparable but yeah i mean you're right you know tunisia is um overlooked compared to and obviously in the arab world the the revolutions were much more significant the failed revolution in egypt or the thwarted revolution in syria um and so on yeah so i mean it illustrates the point very well
I think this brings us quite nicely onto um, a, an article that I wanted to, to discuss with, with the two of you, which is Anne Applebaum's um, recent intervention, if you will, into the uh, analysis of the centenary. So Anne Applebaum, for our listeners, who's Professor of Praxis, of, I almost said Professor of Praxis, no, Professor of Practice, <laughs> definitely not Praxis, at the Institute of Global Affairs, very vague, um, at the LSE. Um, and she's kind of a professional red scarer. So she wrote a Washington Post uh, opinion piece, um, which was entitled, A Hundred Years Later, Bolshevism is Back and We Should Be Worried. Well, what do you guys think? Oh, if only. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if only. But I, I think this is, this is it tells us something, right? I mean, it, as I was referring to the kind of, la- the, the way in which it feels like the Cold War never truly ended in Latin America. And maybe in Eastern Europe, there's, there's a similar thing as well, that um, the communism still holds... A, a certain meaning in people's imaginary and it can be used to scare people um, and that's been the, the case in Eastern Europe since the, the collapse of, of the actually existing socialist regimes but I think you're kind of starting to see this stuff now coming about even in, in the kind of um, in the West so you're getting it in uh, I think she, she, Anne Applebaum even makes reference to uh, Syriza in Greece Podemos in Spain and I think like maybe even Corbyn in the UK um, so there does seem to be something going on and that there's, if not a resurgence of, of a communist movement, then resurgence of the right using communism as a sort of scare tactic, which it didn't used to do so, didn't used to do very much over the past 20 years. What's weird about it, though, is also everybody is a Bolshevik. Everybody's a neo-Bolshevik apart from Emmanuel Macron, right? So the Daily Mail, a Bolshevik because they support Brexit and they uh, went after the judges in the court case over Brexit and parliamentary the parliamentary vote. I mean, it's it's deranged. It's just unhinged. It's not, you know, that she just kind of swipes. It's not just red scare. It's full on meltdown panic on with everyone who's like, whether they're right or left, they're a Bolshevik. Anybody who disagrees with the center. And so weirdly, like, you know, the horseshoe theory just collapses into every, you know, this kind of... Uh, very insane kind of liberal version of friend and enemy. Everyone who is opposed to Emmanuel Macron and Applebaum is a Bolshevik. So let's uh, let, let's have a look at uh, a little bit at what she um, at what she actually says in this article. So aside from so she starts off with the, that kind of hoary old chestnut that it wasn't a revolution, it was a coup, um, and then she she says, uh, well, in fact, how she starts. Uh, so, dis- so discredited was Bolshevism after the Soviet Union's demise in 1991 that for a quarter of a century it seemed as if Bolshevik thinking was gone for good. But suddenly now, in the year of the revolution centenary, it's back. So, I mean, this is this is this is the so-called hook of this article to get. You know, it just so happens that you know obviously po- politics must be cyclical. Hundred years, it's coming back. So the first, um, the first in in her. Her gallery of rogues of neo-Bolsheviks is uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So might or might not surprise you to hear that the current leader of the British Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, comes out of the old pro-Soviet far left. He has voiced anti-American, anti-NATO, anti-Israel, and even anti-British and pro-IRA sentiments for decades. Uh, with so this is this is what um what, what do you guys think of this? Within his party, there is a core of radicals who speak of overthrowing capitalism and bringing back nationalisation. So that's got to be getting some people kind of shitting in their cornflakes reading the Washington Post, right? <laughs> it's I mean, so yeah, extreme, I... though. You know, like, you're not allowed to disagree with NATO. And how many NATO members, you know, run, like, national railway companies and national electricity <laughs> exactly. grids? It's just insane. Like, I mean, she, it's just insane. 
I, I think it's also like if speaks to the fact that she doesn't seem to understand how capitalism works. I mean, and has worked throughout its its entire history. The nationalization has been a fairly kind of standard way of running economies in, in areas where there's natural monopolies. It's like, you know, I think it's the fact that she's, she, it's almost as if she's written out this sentence and going, he's anti, you know, anti-NATO, anti-British, anti-American, da-da-da-da-da-da, um, you know, Jezbala, as he's called. Uh, and then he has, and then she has to like conclude something with some actual evidence and of, of him being communistic. And then she's like, well, it's nationalization. <laughs> did, did you just call him Jezbala? Because he's a baller. Je- Oh, that's good. But actually, it's Jezbala, as uh, I think the Daily Mail or the Sun has called him. That's that's got some some headline writers on it clearly earning their earning their wage. Um, yeah. But she but she doesn't say that he is the most influential of the contemporary near Bolsheviks, as as you said earlier, Phil. She says Donald Trump, Viktor Orban, Nigel Farage, Marine Le Pen, and Wait, Jaros- who? who? Marine Le Pen. Sorry, who was, who was I, the one before that? Uh, Farage. Oh him, yeah, right, yeah. Now I, I think, I think he died in a in a plane crash recently. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, Who the hell is but, Nigel Farage? Even you know, like what? What is she smoking? But but there's a serious like there's a, a semi serious point here, which is, what is it that unites all of these um, all of these people? So this this gallery this um, group of uh, contemporary uh, influential Bolsheviks. What, I mean, what do you think links them together? What is it that so frightens the contemporary liberal uh, imagination about these these political actors? I mean, it's a bit of a cheap shot to kind of jump straight to to sort of a, a psychoanalytic response to these um, delirious people. But I think in some sense it's justified because I think there is something going on here, right? Even minor demands for social improvement or for some break with the current um, structures of of the global governance system or whatever it is um, are met with these hysterical denunciations, right? Um, But the the kind of psychopolitical factor is that, you know, capitalism over the past 30 years has has had things all its own way. It's faced very little opposition you know historically if you look at it you know for 150 years it had its 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 uh, its opposition in communism and with the end of that it's just being contradicted is something they're not used to um and it brings out this exceptionally defensive reaction and a bit of hysterical one which is unable to actually put the pieces together and understand where how one thing relates to another and so they're amalgamated into this kind of you know, but and then you pick you pick your term, right? Neo Bolshevism. Yeah, that sounds scary. Let's lump everyone into that bucket. Um, but I think it also reflects like an actual genuine difficulty that defenders of um, the current world order have, uh, which is just that the, the, their room for maneuver is relatively narrow, and they have they sense the lack of legitimacy that um, the current way that society is run has. Um, so they feel that you know they 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 know that there's growing inequality. Um, that wages have already been repressed over the past 30 years and they have no response to um, to anything. They have no way of concocting some vision of how society might be improving. They Their only response is, we're going to keep things from getting much, much worse. Look to my left, look to my right. Those things are worse. You know, and that's, that's it. That's all they've got. Phil? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I wanted to say, I think it's easy, um, you know, it's easy, I guess, to attack Anne Applebaum. You know, she's a neo, neoconservative historian um, and, on all, you know, even a cold warrior. Um, where I think it's more the um, more embarrassing and more difficult, perhaps, is the relative um, silence of the left in response to the Bolshevik Revolution. So Paul Mason wrote a kind of very ambivalent um, 
you know, strangely kind of ambivalent uh, op-ed for The Guardian where he denied being a Bolshevik, but said that he celebrated the Russian Revolution and then gave this very kind of convoluted account of it. Um, whereas others on social media, Owen Jones, um, the luxury communists, you know, silence or kind of very cursory, cursory acknowledgement of the revolution. And that I think is, um, you know, that I think speaks, speaks to more important um, deficiencies than Anne Applebaum's uh, crazy kind of frothing at the mouth. Well, let me put something to you then, Phil, because if you're if what your book says is right, or if we follow its argument uh, that the revolution failed, it didn't succeed, or it was it had an initial period of, of success, but uh, but the conditions for it genuinely succeeding weren't met in terms of the revolution be going global, uh, then why should we care about 1917? I mean, I'm not arguing we shouldn't study history, but why should we be looking back at that? And if the left is looking uh, for ways to chart a new future, then why look back to that old trajectory which has reached its dead end? Because you can't avoid it. So, I mean, this is the point, I guess. They're ignore, attempting to ignore it is not going to work either. And you have to reckon with it. And this is uh, my attempt, at least, to reckon with it. I think also the issue is that to some degree, or in or rather in a kind of profound and meaningful way, that capitalism is genuinely cyclical. So we get better gizmos like mobile phones and laptops and things like that. But the basic rhythm of capitalist development is entirely circular and repetitive. And so, you know, it goes through goes through boom and bust business cycles and associated political convulsions. And therefore, it keeps on reposing the same dilemmas, whether or not it's possible to do better. So to that degree, the most serious effort to do better, but also one that involved politics and the seizure of state power. To into and to kind of attach that wielding of power to a vision, that I think is something that needs to be reckoned with. Otherwise, you know, if you don't avoid, if you evade the hard questions of political power and what to do with it, you're basically just an anarchist, whether or not you know it. Yeah, yeah, and we and we had a whole lot of that over the two thousands. Absolutely, um, yeah. famous as the title of one book famously had it: how to how to change the world without taking power. Um, and hopefully, we're leaving that kind of nonsense behind. Insofar as there's today maybe a slightly more of a grappling with the need um, to take power, or at least um, a, a grappling with actual politics. Um, but that's maybe an open question. Is there? It's hard to say. I mean, I guess, you know, there is certainly, I mean, there is a revival of political parties, you know, not very impressive. You know, Syriza has become the new, effectively, the new PASOK in Greece, wielding the, the new kind of compradors for the European Union. Um, Podemos, you know, hasn't really delivered. And both of them grew out of apolitical, or not apolitical, but um, leaderless kind of forms of bottom-up protest, right? That developed kind of in spontaneous response, the indignados yeah. in Spain, and then also the protests in Syntagma Square in Greece and Athens. So they both grew out, they've both grown out of this kind of social movementism, which has been suspicious and hostile to political leadership and to organized political parties. And yet, and yet, people like Anne Applebaum, I mean, the, the sort of, um, you know, the center-right hysterics um, who tried to talk up a red scare actually go on about Corbyn and the supposed leader worship that he inspires amongst, uh, amongst his followers in the Labour Party, in the left wing of the Labour Party. So you could, that's an interesting counterpoint, actually, where they argue that, well, here's a, here's a clear leader that people follow. Uh, people want him to take power and to bring in sweeping change. 
yeah. whether you believe them or not is a different question. But but there is something there which is different to to the social movementism, as you call it, uh, of the past sort of twenty years. Absolutely, but also, I mean, if you think of the Hillary cult, you know, um, the demented response to Hillary's loss, um, particularly among people like or the she didn't Macron. lose, she won, she won, she got more votes, <laughs> she won. <laughs> well, she won, you know, she won the Democratic vote, but I mean, the Macron, but also like the cult of Macron, you know, then there is no nobody, none of those people have any um, have any have any right to criticize uh, the fact that Corbyn has popularity among Labour Party members, you know. So actually, to, to to build on the 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 Macron point, um, the just I guess briefly reflecting on what what Applebaum's um, I guess uh, solution to to this to this perceived threat of Bolshevism is she so she writes the French may even have taken the first necessary step in the longer battle against false revolutions by voting for our man uh, Mr., uh, Emmanuel Macron. She doesn't first... say she doesn't say our man, does she? No, she doesn't. But we're, I'm saying our man, <laughs> the three of us, um, our boy. We know, we've talked about him before. We, we've we've talked about him fairly extensively on this podcast. Yeah, he's gap tooth. But, beca- but because he represents something, right? He he represents in possibly the last gasp, or or at least in the eyes of his supporters, um, the kind of rejuvenation of uh, centrist technocracy uh, with a young face um, in 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 light of uh, populist challenges from the left and right. The first major so European a... politician to argue for a muscular revival of liberalism. As there we go. Puts it. So, um, and then she, she she continues by saying, "What what what we need to do to get rid of the Bolsheviks is offer offer a positive vision, both open and patriotic. Don't let the nationalists appeal to the people over the head of the voters." So, I mean, I think that's one of the the, the major concerns that she, that come come out of this article which i think is which kind of extend it includes but also extends beyond the the, the red panic which is that there does seem to have been a re-emergence of, re-emergence of politics to a certain extent in some in the uk and the us and some people are quite frightened about that there's actually seems like oh people are people are not doing as not doing as they're told so obviously there's only going to be you know six months before there's going to be a, a, a revolution um, I'm not convinced. I think there is. I think there is oppositional antagonism, which is different from liberal technocracy and um, phony, you know, competition over the centre ground by two parties that are ideologically the same. So I think the, you know, there is a kind of a spec. There is a spectre of opposition, or rather, there is oppos- You know, there's political opposition between populism and technocracy, and that gives the that kind of gives a spectral impression of politics but i don't i'm not sure that it's quite politics yet i think there's too much um there's too much division there's not enough um competition over some kind of mutually agreed understanding of what a beneficial future society might look like but you know perhaps i mean perhaps that would be the next stage after the disintegration of the current of the prevailing order um, I get, and I, I guess what would be indicative of that is that we would stop talking, at least at least amongst kind of serious political analysts and not hysteric, uh, and not hysterical op-ed columnists, uh, that we stop talking about populism, that uh, oppositional movements stop being lumped in um, as a sort of populist blob, but actually have definite programmatic characteristics which are very different from one another. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, because I think I mean populism, I think is is a one of the 
one of the comparisons around the centenary has been to suggest that Lenin and the Bolshevik Party are in the populist mold, uh, insurrectionary anti-elite, um, sloganeering, simplistic solutions to complex problems, all of this kind of stuff, you know, which is it's worth remembering. I mean, how much of a travesty and calumny that is. Because obviously their simple solution was to withdraw from the First World War and to try to bring the First World War to an end, and that was, con you know, that's considered the great simple solution retrospectively, which is what everybody wanted, but the Bolsheviks actually implemented. But that aside, I mean, famously, the you know the way in which the Russian radical, the Marxist um, radical Marxist formed was in opposition to populism, right? So that was the, the Russian populists were some of the groups who Lenin polemicized in some of his earliest polemics are against the so-called Russian populists, who were genuine populists in the sense that they, in the way in which we understand today, which is, um, you know, essentially uh, a very kind of crude, um, a crude analysis, an understanding of easy mass insurrection, radicalism that's kind of unstructured that doesn't make any effort to analyze divisions within the population within the nation or within society but just opposes society and the state and aims for some kind of more authentic um, vision after having overthrown the powers that be the czar in the case of the russian populists but it's worth remembering um, i guess that the bolsheviks explicit one of the they i mean the enemies of the bolsheviks were the populists the enemies of the Russian Social Democrats were the populists. That's who they defined themselves against politically when they were emerging in the in the late nineteenth century. That's a, a really nice place at which to to put a bow on it and, uh, and and call it call it a day. So a big um, red bow, a big, big red, red bow, big red bow. So uh, yeah, so thanks, Alex, and thanks very much, Phil. Um, so again, the book is Lenin Lives: uh, Reimagining the Russian Revolution, nineteen seventeen to 2017 and that's out now from zero books and listeners we're going to be back in a fortnight so see you then bye 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 bye